Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. All right, you guys, I, um, I don't want to brag and I don't want to create any um, maybe unrealistic expectations, but uh, my sermon this morning literally shook the foundation of the earth. And so, um, you know, I'm just saying that I was preaching and the world started shaking. And so causation and correlation, we can uh, debate that. But um, no, I'm really glad that you are here tonight. We are in week three of a series that we're going to be in over the next few months in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church in, um, any guesses what city? Corinth, right? Hence the name Corinthians. He wrote it in roughly 54, 55 AD. It was a church that he loved and had planted. He had gone away from. And then this church reached out to Paul and said, hey, there's some things going on in the church. There's some questions that we have. And Paul, the, 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's response to what he hears is going on in that church and the questions that they have. And in the section of scripture we're gonna be looking at tonight, I think Paul wants to ground the church on its foundation. He wants to tell them where they stand so that they can know who God is calling them to become. But in order to do that, he wants to ground them in the most important event that has ever taken place in the history of the world, which got me thinking this week, what are some of the most important events that have shaped history? Right, like if you were to look at um, story theory, there's this whole story arc theory and you get to the, the moment of truth, the climax where the story definitively changes. It's on the other side of that. And this event that happens in the climax of the story changes the rest of the story forever. There's no going back. And there's a number of events throughout the history of our world that have been those types of events, uh, moments of truth. I found somebody that did some research and they tried to identify 10 of the most world-shaping events that have ever taken place. And here was their list. The discovery of fire shaped our world. The domestication of dogs. This one was surprising to me. I mean, I'm a big fan of it. It was, but I thought, really the domestication of, oh, Lou, Lou, there he is, Louie. Um, I don't know if I'd put it in the top 10, but we can debate that after. The invention of the wheel the creation of currency, the invention of the alphabet, the creation of religion, the advent of timekeeping, the invention of the printing press, the Renaissance, the industrial revolution. For those of us who are um, Americans who live in the United States, we would maybe say the Declaration of Independence is one of those world-shaping events. Our nation was born through that. Um, some people might say that what happened on January 25th, 1998 at Qualcomm Stadium was a world-changing event. Yes, the Denver Broncos won their very first ever Super Bowl that day. Not as world-shaping as maybe um, I would think. But, but there's one event that I would, didn't find on the list that I looked at that the Apostle Paul would look at and he would say, this is the definitive event 
that have shaped the entire world. Nothing even comes close. Nothing holds a candle to it. And for the Apostle Paul, the crucifixion of Jesus is the most important event that has ever taken place in the history of our world. And we can tell that it has significance in Scripture because of the way that the four gospel writers value that event higher than any other event. I mean, if you were to sort of look at Jesus' life, Jesus lived for roughly 33 years. That's 1,716 weeks. One week of his life is 0.06% of the entire life that he lived on earth. And yet, of the four gospel accounts, 33% of the material that we have about Jesus focuses on that one week, and most of it focuses on what happened on that cross and then subsequently in the resurrection. Do you think that this was an important event for the authors of Scripture? Yes. But listen to the words of Jesus himself as he thinks about the cross that he is walking to He says, now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He goes, "Uh, should I I ask God to allow me to avoid the cross? And he goes, no, for this purpose I have come to this hour. He's saying the reason that I'm here, the reason that I walk the face of the earth is to go to the cross and to die for the sin of humanity to make a way for people back to God. It is the most world-shaping event that has ever taken place. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it like this, the inner criterion of whether or not Christian theology is Christian lies in the crucified Christ. The cross is the test of everything. It's the test of everything. And I think We need to do a little bit of work in order to enter back into the way that a first century reader of Paul's letter might have viewed the cross. Because we're we're surrounded by crosses. We have one in our worship center. We have one that's on the street corner. We have one on our chapel. I mean, you probably have some piece of jewelry that has a cross on it. You may have a necklace or an earring. Some of you may have a tattoo that has a cross on it. And I would just suggest to you that every single one of those crosses would have been considered to be absolutely absurd in the first century. To wear jewelry with a cross would have been something that the people who received this letter would have never imagined happening. In our day and time, the the cross, what it was in the first century may be akin to like an electric chair, some sort of torture device or, or a noose, something that would be defined by killing and torture. That's what the cross was in the first century. And yet the apostle Paul is gonna write to the church at Corinth and his point is gonna be, no event has shaped history more than the cross of Christ. And we need to sort of try to pull out of the fact that we have 2,000 years in the wake of Jesus' cross and crosses are normal now and crosses are jewelry now to enter back into the first century. To have the cross at the center point of history is absurd. It's absolutely insane. It would never have made sense to this original audience. See, the cross confronts our ideas about the way we think the world should work, how God should operate, 
and how victory should be won. The cross, it rubs against our sensibilities, our perceived ingenuity, and our assumptions. And the cross demands that we come to God on his terms, not on ours. And it's because of all those reasons that even though we're surrounded by the cross, there are times still where we try to avoid it. We try to keep it at an arm's length distance. Theologian H. Richard Niebuhr in his book, The Kingdom of God in America, he sort of tried to summarize the church in this way. He said, the church has adopted a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. His point is, in religion, we have to a large degree, emptied the cross of its power. And so Paul is going to write to a church in Corinth that is doing the exact same thing in a totally different way. They're resisting finding their feet in that narrative. For the church in Corinth, they think they're beyond the cross. They think they've advanced to, to prog progressed beyond what the cross could offer and Paul is going to call them to ground their life, their church, their heart firmly in the work of Christ on the cross. It is the definitive event that shapes history more than any other. So if you have your Bible, open with me 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It's where Paul, we're going to pick up the words of Paul. And he starts to press on this theme. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians is, is largely practical, as we'll see over the next few months together. But in order to set a foundation for those practicalities Paul's going to address later, he wants to lay a theological foundation that the church is built on. And listen to what he says. He says, for the word of the cross is folly. It's, it's foolishness. It's crazy. It's absurd to those who are, say it with me, Emmanuel Faith, perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So he's saying the same event is looked at in different ways by different people. He says to those who are perishing, and notice that for the Apostle Paul, the natural state of humanity apart from Christ is perishing. That word means to be completely doomed, to be utterly destroyed, to be completely wiped out. It's what the disciples say when they cry out to Jesus when their boat is starting to sink. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. We're perishing. And the Apostle Paul would say, well, that's a picture of every single human being apart from the work of Christ. So and when you look at the cross, if you're perishing, you see it as foolishness, as folly, as absolutely insane. But if you know Jesus, you see it as salvation. You see it as power. You see it as God's work in your life, drawing you back to him. And please notice that we are not perishing because of God. We are perishing because sin has separated us from God. And Jesus is at work bringing us home to the Father. So what's God's response to our perishing? The cross. The cross. And see, it's for that reason the cross is the fulcrum point of history. It forces us to respond to the love God demonstrates and the rescue He provides. It forces us 
to decide what will we do with the cross. And when some people look at it, they see folly. And when some people look at it, they see power. The question I want to ask you tonight is, what do you see? What do you see? I sort of envision it a little bit like uh, one of those um, that, that technically they are called auto stereograms. You may know them as the magic eye. Right? Remember these little booklets where they had these uh, patterns that embedded within the patterns were three-dimensional shapes that if you were to look at it a certain way, they would pop off the page? Anybody remember these where they were really popular a while back? And they even had galleries with a bunch of these magic eyes in them. And I can remember walking past this gallery that had a bunch of glass windows you could look in. And there was just a bunch of people in there like this, right? And they're like cross-eyed looking at it. And then all of a sudden you'd see somebody go, Got it, got it, and it popped out, right? The three-dimensional object, boom, they saw it. And I think that's what Paul's talking about, a similar type of experience when you look at the cross. And some people go, it's two dimensions. It's weakness, it's absurd, it's folly. And some people look at it and it goes three-dimension and they go, oh, it's, it's power, it's salvation. It's God's wisdom on display. The question is, what do you see when you look at the cross? You see, it's in the cross that we see the extent that God would go to save humanity that he so dearly loves. And look at the way Paul continues this idea. He says this, for it's written, verse 19. And so Paul's gonna quote scripture. He's gonna go to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. In the original context, God is speaking through Isaiah to the nation of Israel and essentially God's message in this section is, you're trying to match wits with me. You're trying to be smarter than me. And it's God saying, I'm smarter than you. So this is free tonight. Um, He's also smarter than you. Okay? And trying to match wits with God is never a good thing. You never win that. And Paul says, essentially to the Corinthian church, that's exactly what you're doing too. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And a lot of people will read this section of Paul and they'll say, Man, Paul, Paul seems to be a bit anti-intellectual. He seems to be pushing back against wisdom and intellect and knowledge. And I would just gently suggest to you that Paul is making an absolutely brilliant message or a brilliant point about not making brilliant points, right? I don't think that Paul is saying that wisdom in general is wrong, not at all. In fact, what he's saying is wisdom apart from God is useless and oftentimes our wisdom edges God to the periphery and to the sidelines. Now, what he wants to say is that certainly the cross seems like the epitome of religion gone crazy. Like you can't use human wisdom and get to the cross of Christ. It's not gonna happen. In fact, um, One of the early bishops in the early church in Smyrna, his name was Polycarp. 
He had somebody in his congregation, it was a woman who was coming to faith in Jesus and her husband was really distraught about this. And so her husband went to one of the priests at Apollo's temple and asked him what to do about the fact that his wife was becoming a follower of Jesus. The priest responded by saying this, let her continue as she pleases, persisting in her vain delusions and lamenting in song a God who died in delusions, who was condemned by judges whose verdict was just and executed in the prime of life by the worst of deaths, a death bound with iron. I mean, he echoes what the apostle Paul would say, that from the outside looking in, if you don't look at it in three dimensions, if it doesn't pop off the page to you, the cross of Christ looks like absolute insanity. You would never get there with worldly wisdom. And that's exactly why C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity, wrote, reality is something you could not have guessed. He says, that is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. His point is essentially, no one's gonna make that up. It either happened or it didn't. And the fact that followers of Jesus have gathered around it for 2,000 years, C.S. Lewis says, gosh, I'm in. I'm in. And so Paul goes on from there and he starts to try to identify specific reasons that the cross is in fact at the center point of history, that it is in fact the most important event that has ever taken place. And look at what he says, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so Paul, in a very sort of meta type of way, wants to draw a big blanket statement and say that humanity has been searching for God since the dawn of creation. They've been reaching out for him. But it was in their wisdom that they fell short. Nobody ever came to a knowledge of God based on wisdom alone. No, no, no. It was through the cross that we started to know what God is like. And that's Paul's point. That's why the cross is powerful. That through the cross, we know what the creator God is ultimately like. It would be like having a pair of binoculars and having them focused on something and it's blurry and it's blurry and it's blurry. And then they come into focus and boom, whatever you're looking at pops off the page. Paul says that's exactly what the cross did for our revelation of who God is and what God is like. The cross brings the creator God into focus. But not only that, not only that, it doesn't just bring the creator God into focus. The cross brings us to the creator God. See, because this word knowledge is the word gnosko in the Greek. Will you say this with me? Gnosko. And it literally means intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge. It goes beyond just head knowledge to, I know this person. I've seen them face to face. And that's what Paul is saying, that the cross brings us face to face with the creator, God of the universe. So just pause and take in what he's saying here. His point is that if you don't know God by way of the cross, you don't know God. If you don't know God by way of the cross, you don't know God. And the cross reveals what 
God is like, but it also reveals how we come to know God. And how we come to know God is through the cross. Or we might say it this way. The cross reveals that relationship with God is established through grace, not earning. Through the cross, we know God. How much did you have to do with the cross? Nothing. The only thing you brought to the cross was sin. That's it. It was Jesus who died, Jesus who gave his life, and Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin. And it's the cross that speaks a better word over our lives, friends. The cross that declares it's not about your effort, it's not about your earning, it's not about how great you are. It is about a God who shouldered the burden of your sin and shame, buried it in the ground, and rose with new life in his hands. And when you see that, the cross starts to pop out in three dimensions because his grace is on display. Friends, Christianity is the only religion that has as its center point God himself suffering for us. And what we see when we see God suffering is we see his grace on display. Last year, one of the books that I read is entitled um, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And it was just so brilliant and so good and really tender and drew me in. And there was one story that he told that just stuck with me. It was a story of this young woman named Jenny and she'd grown up in a Christian home and she got really disenfranchised with faith and got at odds with her parents and decided to leave home and and she went and she found herself eventually living on the streets and uh, she was turning tricks in order to earn money and she was doing drugs in order to pacify her pain and her life was just an absolute wreck. And she lived in that cycle for a few years until she finally just reached the bottom of the barrel. And she decided, I'm just gonna call my folks and see if there's any way I could maybe just maybe come home. She called them once and got the answering machine called him again, got the answering machine, called him again, answering machine. And then finally on the fourth try, she just decided, I'm just gonna leave a message. And here's the message she left. Mom and dad, I'm taking a bus and I'm gonna show up at the bus stop in our hometown. And I'll be there for 15 minutes on this day. And if you want relationship with me, I would love to see you there. And if not, I totally understand. So she got on that bus and the bus pulled into the station where her hometown was. And she got off not knowing what to expect. Her palms were sweaty, her head was down. She walked off the bus into the station and she started to look around. And there were 40 people from her family that showed up to the bus station dressed up in goofy outfits. I'm not exactly sure why, that's just part of the story. They had a sign that said, welcome home. She walks up to her dad and she just tears in her eyes and she starts to say, dad, I'm so sorry. And he looks at her and he says, we don't have time for that right now. There's a party that we have prepared that we have got to go to. I love you, I am so grateful grateful that you are home. 
And I don't know where you've been and I don't know what roads you've walked down and I don't know what kind of darkness you've experienced and I don't know what's been done to you and the choices that you've made. All I know is that there's a center, a cross at the center point of history that declares that your relationship with God is not based on what you've done and how you've performed and what you've earned and how great you are. There is a welcome party ready for anybody that wants to come home because there's a cross at the center point of history that declares God God is for you. He is for you. And Paul's point is he is not a God that we try to figure out. He's a God who finds us out. In grace and mercy, he comes to our rescue. And I don't know who needs to hear that tonight, but God is a God of grace. He's a God of love. And there's a cross at the center point of history that proves it definitively. Here's the next thing Paul says. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. This is Paul's way of saying that every culture throughout time has had their way of resisting the cross. Because it, it's on the surface, it's absurd. To be redeemed through a torturous death seems like an absurdity. Yeah, the Jews, what they wanted were, were signs. They wanted power. They wanted God to show up and dominate. They wanted God to show up and free them from the oppression they were under in the Roman Empire. They wanted a new, better exodus. What did the Greeks want? Oh man, they wanted eloquence. They wanted something flashy. They wanted oratory. They wanted to be able to stand up and package God through an eloquent argument and rhetoric that would make people go, wow, that's pretty amazing. And neither of them got what they were hoping for. What they got was the cross. That's what they got. And I started to wonder, if Paul were writing this to the church in America, what would he say? Uh, Americans demand what? Uh, Americans seek what? Science? Yeah. Wait, wait. Signs? Sign okay, yeah. I asked a few people, some of the other answers I got were, um, Americans seek progress, we seek prosperity, we seek safety, we seek security, we seek comfort, we seek freedom. There are still ways, friends, that the cross pushes back against us in our day and our time today. But listen to what Paul speaks into that resistance. But we preach, say it with me, church. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You just need to know that a crucified Christ is an oxymoron. It's like, jum or it's like jumbo shrimp. It's like fried ice. It makes no sense on the surface. To have a Christ who is crucified is absolute absurdity in the wisdom of the world. That's the very reason that Christianity is the only religion that has as its center point the suffering and degradation of its God, but it's also the reason that God can look at you and say, I know what you're going through. It's the way he enters with solidarity into the pain and the suffering of his world. But listen to the way, the contrast between the way that people viewed the cross and what the cross accomplished. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, here's Paul's next point. He says, listen, what happened on the cross 
What Jesus did on the cross was power. Power in the Greek is the word dunamis, and it literally means might or force or energy or ability. Power gets things done. It's the reason that you drive a car that has horsepower. It's the reason that you want a power tool, because it gets things done. The irony, though, is that people would have looked at the cross in the ancient world, and they would have said, certainly the cross has power. But its power lies in the one who's doing the crucifixion, not in the one who's being crucified. And so Christianity turns all of this on its head when Jesus says, no, the power actually lies in me being crucified, giving my life for the sin of humanity. That's where the power lies. Listen to the way that Paul echoed this in the letter to the Colossians. He said, and you, this would be applicable for you too, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, the power of the cross. We are made alive. We are forgiven. Our debt is canceled. It's completely set aside. Oh, and on top of that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open, say this word with me, Shame, which was the purpose of the cross. The reason people crucified others was to shame them, was to dehumanize them, was to strip away their dignity. And Paul says that's exactly what happened to the principalities and powers when Jesus died on the cross. He shamed them by triumphing over them in him. Oh my goodness, you guys. The power of the cross Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. God's justice is satisfied. The cross atones for sin. It removes the barrier that existed between us and God. The cross justifies us. It pronounces us definitively not guilty. The cross provides our forgiveness. It repairs relationship between us and a holy God. The cross proves God's love. Even while we were enemies, he loves us. The cross defeated our cosmic enemies of sin and death and evil. That's power. Can I get an amen? Got one. And this is the sort of when the cross starts to pop out in three dimensions, here's what we see. That the cross, whoops, that was I was going to skip that. Um, now I'll probably have to talk about it since it's a little awkward. Here's a, the cross opposes our desire for dominance because I think that's the kind of power we long for, right? To be the one doing the crucifixion, not the one being crucified. And it unveils power through sacrificial love. On display is what might look like the Japanese martial art form of Aikido where you use somebody's energy and momentum against them. It's exactly what Jesus does. When the enemy takes his greatest shot at Jesus on the cross, he uses his energy against him, flips it on its head, and wins victory through the power of love. And friends, here's what we learn through the cross. That the power of love is the greatest power the world has ever seen, then and now. There is no greater power than to love someone else and to advocate for their good. It aligns us with the heart of God and it allows us to operate in his way 
with his heart. And the thing I love about pastoring this church is that this is happening in so many different ways in little nooks all over our community. One of those ways is through one of our um, people on our security team. His name is Dennis Beattie. And um, before COVID, he used to go down to Juvenile Hall and he used to share the good news of Jesus with students who were um, in Juvenile Hall. And because of COVID, he, was, he had to stop going down there and he just wanted to find a way to minister to young people. He has a huge heart for young people. And so he started this ministry where he started to go down to Washington Park. There's this great skate park there. And he would hang out and he would start talking with kids who were skating there. And he would start telling them about Jesus and Jesus's love for them. And he partnered with FCA and he got a bunch of Bibles to start handing out. And he went and he bought some skateboards for kids that were sort of on the fringes and didn't have a skateboard, but were there at the park. And he started to use this as a way to just share the good news of Jesus with these kids that were skating down at the park. And God has used this little ministry that he started to draw people to himself. He invites them to come to Emmanuel Faith. He invites them to know Jesus. He invites them to read scripture and he shows up repeatedly to make these little deposits of love into their life. And I just have to wonder, my guess is you're doing that in a number of areas. And I just wanna cheer you on. I wanna say, keep going. Keep living in the way of Jesus. Keep living out the power of love. The cross stands at the center point of history to declare to us there is no greater power in the universe than the power of love. And then here's the next thing he says and the final thing we'll focus on. He says that the cross is not only the power of God, but it's also, say it with me, church, the wisdom of God. Wisdom is living in such a way that aligns with reality. That's what wisdom is. It's living in a way that allows you to walk in alignment with the way God has wired the universe to work. And see, the cross shows us not only, the the cross not only defies the world's wisdom, but it also demonstrates God's wisdom. It does both at the same time. It really pulls out for us the fact that conventional wisdom isn't all that wise. It doesn't align with reality. You know, wisdom like climb the ladder, get ahead, you do you, fight for your rights, might makes right. And the cross flips all of those on its head and it makes this declaration, the cross, it confronts conventional wisdom and shows us that life actually comes through death. Comes through death. And I have to admit that this is where I started to enter back into the absurdity of the cross as I studied. Yet we're surrounded by crosses. We're inundated with them in some ways. I mean, we're around them all the time. They don't seem all that abnormal to us anymore like they would have in the first century. Until, until we start to think about what it might look like for us not just to appreciate and be grateful for the cross of Christ, but for us to take up our own cross. That's where the absurdity of the cross starts to hit home again, where we go, oh, to walk in that myself, to live that out, that is absurd. That that does feel a little bit crazy. And yet what Jesus would say to every single one of us, take up his cross and follow me. That's the invitation for every single one of us. And he follows that up with, 
for whoever would save his life will lose it. Meaning, you try to protect yourself, you try to defend yourself, you try to come out on top, you decide you're never going to lose that type of attitude, your life will slip through your hands. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, oh, they'll save it. Their life will be healed. Their life will be restored. Their eternity will be sealed. It's this upside down kingdom, but this kind of wisdom to say, God, I'm willing to die to myself in order that I might truly live is the wisdom of the cross. And it is the wisdom that Jesus is inviting you to walk in and with your roommates, on your campus, in your workplace, in your marriage, with your kids, and all around our Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. The cross, I'll end where I began. The cross confronts our ideas of the way that we think the world should work, about the way God should operate and how victory ought to be won. It rubs against our sensibilities, our perceived ingenuity and our assumptions. And yet, and yet, The cross is God's wisdom on display. So what do you do with it? It's the most defining event in the history of the world. But what is it to you? Is it foolishness or is it wisdom? Is it weakness or is it strength? Is it salvation or is it absolute Absurdity, And see, here's the truth, friends, is that the cross will either be our cornerstone or it will be a stumbling block. But either way, it will be central. In your life, you will either build around the cross, it will be the cornerstone of your entire life, or you will trip over the cross, but it will only be one of those two things. So what is it for you? And maybe today's the day that you realize what Jesus has done for you on the cross and you run to him for the very first time to receive that welcome of grace that he promises because he purchased it. And maybe for you, you start to realize, gosh, I've, somewhere along the way, I started to believe that I've gotta be on top. I've gotta have power in order to have joy, in order to have success, And maybe today you start to let go of that a little bit to see the power of the cross, the power of love. And maybe, just maybe, you start to lay down your rights a little bit to pick up your cross and to do what Jesus invited you to do, which is follow him. I just wanna give you a few moments to think about what your response is to this passage. And while you do that, I'm gonna put up one of my favorite paintings of the cross. It was done in 1632 by a man named Diego Velasquez. It's entitled Crucified Christ. And one of the reasons I like it is because it's pretty simple. And I wanna invite you tonight to just envision yourself standing right at the base of the cross looking up. To see Jesus' eyes, his love, the pain, and to hear his invitation once again to walk in the way of grace, 
to experience the power of his love and to walk in his path of wisdom. Would you just soak in this for a few moments? Jesus, we come before your throne, remembering that your, your coronation was a crucifixion, that you made a way for us by the shedding of your own blood, the giving of your own life. And Lord, as the cross stands at the center point of history, we also wanted to stand at the center point of our life, that it would shape us that it would define us, that in it we would find your power and your wisdom and that we would live it out. So God, for the ways that we're resisting the prompting of your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would just draw us in. The ways that in our own wisdom and ingenuity, we think we know of a better way. God, I pray that you would destroy the discernment that we think we have. Lord, for the people in this room that are resisting your grace and maybe just can't accept it, it's for everybody else, but not for them. Oh Lord, would you break down those walls and remind them that there's a cross at the center point of history declaring that you love us. Lord, may the cross always be at the center of our lives. May it be at the center of our marriages and the center of our friendships. May it be in the center of our church and God, may it be in the center of this community, the power of your love, the wisdom of letting go and the absolute beauty of grace. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.